Hi, this is Leland Sklar, and I just want to say what a joy it is to be here on the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Check it out. This is really great. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream, and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast. I am Robert Miller, your host. I'm very pleased to tell you that my band, Project Grand Slam, will be performing a benefit concert on Tuesday, August 17th in Lenox, Massachusetts, in the Berkshire Hills, for Shakespeare and Company, a premier Shakespearean acting troupe will be appearing in the Tina Packer Theater starting at 8.30 p.m. If you're in the area, please come out and see the band, and you'll be supporting a great cause. For tickets, just go to Shakespeare.org. Today, I have the great fortune to have another colossus of the bass on this podcast, Nathan East. I recently interviewed Lee Sklar, another monster bassist who has worked with everyone from James Taylor to Phil Collins. I called him the Babe Ruth of bassists. Well, Nate is another guy who is right up there on the Mount Rushmore of bass players. I'll call him the Lou Gehrig of bassists. He's worked with everyone from Eric Clapton to Daft Punk. Nathan East is a legend in music. You know, Lou Gehrig was known as the Iron Man for playing in over 2,000 consecutive baseball games. Well, Nathan East has over 2,000 recording sessions to his credit. He's the Iron Man of music. As a bassist myself, I said I was totally intimidated to interview Leland Sklar. Well, I'm frightened to death to interview Nathan East. But again, somebody's got to do it. That's how good and respected he is. And in the second half of this show, we're going to do another song fest with Nate, something that I absolutely love to do with my musical guests. It's so different and so fun, and no other podcast does it. I've picked out with Nate a handful of famous songs that he's been playing on, and we'll listen to them and talk about them, and you'll get the inside story. My featured song in this episode, which is playing under this introduction, and you'll hear it later as well, is my reimagined version of Cream's I'm So Glad, which was recorded live at a festival that I played at with my band, Project Grand Slam, and that appears on our album, Greetings from Serbia. I chose this song for two reasons. First, because Eric Clapton, of course, was in Cream, and Nate is his bass player now. And also, as my homage to Jack Bruce of Cream, who was my favorite bass player as I was growing up and learning the instrument. So, Nate, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Okay, Robert, I'm going to try to live up to that introduction. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're going to have any problem doing that. Not at all. Wow. I like the fact I read somewhere or heard somewhere that you actually started out on the cello. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. Then three years prior to picking up the bass, I played cello. Now, how did you get to the cello? Well, it was one of the instruments available in the um, in my junior high school orchestra, and so it, it it literally came down to the violin and viola were too kind of small, and the upright bass was too big. I was a little <laughs> guy, and so I said, "Okay, I'll take that one, the cello. It looks like fun." And and I'm glad I did. It it was a it's tuned different from the bass, but it's um. It really gave me a, 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 an opportunity to tune my ear and play in an orchestral situation. So I'm, I'm forever grateful. You know, I just mentioned that Jack Bruce was my favorite growing up. And Jack Bruce started out on the cello as well and played it on a bunch of Cream records. So maybe there's something there. I should have started on the cello myself. I didn't know. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He played Jack the cello. Was one of my favorites. I mean, 
you know, I can, I can admit that I used to sit there with the blacklight poster with cream <laughs> on the wall and turn the lights off and play those records and play along with sunshine that you love. <laughs> so, I mean, I was, I was an early fan. Okay. So you started on cello, you moved over to the bass. Tell us that story. I know you have, you've told this story before, but I love the story about how you started on the bass. Yeah, well, well, the bass was first of all. The, my ear always listened to the to the bass in, in records and everything. But you know, back in the days when they had the folk masses, and my brothers were uh, at Christ the King Church rehearsing for one of the masses, and I was tagging along. My brother David played guitar. Ray was the singer. He's now a priest, Monsignor. He has a parish in D.C. now. So it started early in in the family, the the spiritual roots, and um, and and there was a there was a bass sitting on the altar and I'll never forget. It was just sitting there. Nobody was playing it. And I was tagging along at rehearsal and asked whose it was. Nobody knew. It's okay to pick it up. Yeah. Well, I guess no, you know, so I picked this bass up and started playing and uh, it was a little red Gibson EB. <laughs> and you can't imagine the, the feeling that I had. I mean, it literally, I'm, I'm 14 years old and it struck me what I had in my hands was like, this, this is a game changer forever. And kind of, uh, you kind of know it when it happens to you, right? Yeah. It was just, it was the, the most amazing feeling of like, wow, something I feel like I can do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, where you're, you know, at that age, we're all kind of looking for a path and what, what are you good at? What do you, you know? And, and so like right then and there it was really, the gift that gave me the insight to like what I'm going to do for, for the rest of my life. Wow. At 14, you kind of knew it. That's great. Yeah. Who were your favorite players back then? Who'd you listen to? I listened to, to everybody from like Motown records, everything that was out, you know, so Jamerson, was James on Jamerson, he was the guy. Yeah. He was the guy. And, you know, so, you know, when you heard Marvin Gaye, what's going on and all these records, they, that bass line was just like the one, the thing that your ear went to and my ear went to the, and so Jamerson. And then of course the Beatles were out some McCartney and I was loving his, his playing as well as, as well as Jack Bruce and people like that. And then there were a lot of bands. So Rocco from Tower of Power and Birdie White from Earth, Earth, Wind and Fire um, Peter Satare from Chicago. These these were guys that I was listening to as well. Cool uh, in the Gang, Ron Bell, and um, all the music from Gamble and Huff that was coming out of Philly. You know, so so I was kind of just kind of getting tuned up by bands and and the greats like like Jamerson, Chuck Rainey. When you think about the fact that they recorded all that great Motown stuff in basically a basement of somebody's house. Okay. It wasn't set up like a studio. I mean, it was a basement. How did they get all that great sound there? You know, I, I've seen pictures and, you know, they were inventing the wheel at that point. Right. <laughs> totally. Very, very, very uh, inspiring period in music. I think to this day, one of the most fertile time periods. Absolutely. I'm a little bit older than you. I grew up basically with the British Invasion bands. So that's why I was so into Cream. Of course, the Beatles, but the Who and all the other guys. And I loved all the players that were out there at that time. And then I kind of segued my next era was the jazz fusion era, you know, the weather report kind of era. So okay. when I play now, it's kind of those are my main influences. I kind of segue between the British invasion stuff and the jazz fusion stuff. What about for you? What are your main influences? Well, you know, all of those, I mean, when, when Jocko came on the scene, that, that was definitely one of the things that, that hurt all of us. <laughs> <You> <laughs> but I mean, then just prior to that, a little bit, Larry Graham, Graham central station. And, you know, I was in, my my band my local band and everybody came have you heard larry graham you know and and so then that knocked your head off and, and then the same thing about jocko and 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 the band there were a lot of bands like you said the who and you, so you had all these all these sort of iconic players carving the way for us so and i learned these records because i was in top 40 bands as well so i i started learning and listening to all these parts and 
later, I'll, I'll be on the same stage with Mr. Clapton playing these cream songs. You know? oh, we're going to talk about that because you're making me jealous as hell with that one. Um, <laughs> but you went to Barry White University, I've heard you say. Tell everybody about that. Yes. Well, our, our band called Power, that was, uh, we, we did a lot of work out of San Diego and it, it just had a lot of star players. And we played a Stax review at the sports arena. And it had all their artists like uh, Rufus Thomas and Barry White. And so we backed up all the artists. And Barry White, after we played for him, he hired the entire band on the spot. And I'll never forget, we went up to Los Angeles, met with, it, met with him at his office in, uh, on Beverly Boulevard. And we were so excited. And, and, and he hired us. And we were going to get $500 a week. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and we pay our own hotels. <laughs> <laughs> When we and here we are high fiving each other in front of him. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we made it. We made it. Yeah, that was it. But when you're when you're a teenager, you know, I mean, that's just like you won the lottery. Absolutely. And um, so, you know, then I got called to, you know, that was on the touring side, but then he called me to start coming into the studio and, and laying out making those records with him. And so that again was just a like I said, going to Barry White University, these these bass lines that he would just come over and sing to you. He he didn't really write it out, and he'd just come there. The groove Ed Green would be over there playing drums. The next thing you know, Barry's singing you know this line, bo bo bo, and so you're just playing that, and uh, and it's and then everything you know, he'd go over to Ray Parker and sing him a line, and go over to Lee Rittenauer and wah wah. And, and everybody would get their line, and then you just say, "Oh man, look at him just carving out a hit right now!" You know, remarkable. It's incredible. And I know you had a long association with Lee Rittenauer, and you you did foreplay, of course. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. Well, well, Lee was the first artist I went to Japan with in in 1981, and that was kind of like uh, when I got my first Yamaha bass from. Uh, Agi, who was the Yamaha rep over there, and we played at a club called the Pit Inn in Rapungi. And this club was actually designed uh, like a carbon copy of the club, the Baked Potato in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so they had the same logo and everything. I mean, they they mugged every aspect <laughs> of the Baked <laughs> Potato. And so it, it was the club that when you went over to Japan that a lot of the guys played. So we did that for many years. And then later when Bob James asked Lee and Harvey Mason who who should they who should he use on bass for his solo album, they both recommended me, which was which is cool. And um so foreplay, you know, began about ten years later, you know, nineteen ninety we did that Bob James record, Grand Piano Canyon. I, I call it the first foreplay record because it has some really good songs that feature the quartet and and you could hear the sound of foreplay being born on that record. Well, you know, that's just one element of your playing because one thing about your playing, you, you have crossed genres and crossed, you know, different fields in music more so than almost anybody. And I think that's quite remarkable because, you know, some guys, they go in one lane or two lanes, you can go across the entire highway. I think that's spectacular. Well, well, thank you. I mean, it, it's almost like when, you know, when I was talking about what I listened to, I was list I was all over the map there too. So, you know, I'd come out of Tower Records back in the record store days where you could, you know, come out with an armful of albums. Right. And uh, you know, I'd have everything from Miles Davis in there to to Earth, Wind and Fire to Chicago to Rachmaninoff. <laughs> and then my, my my dad had Barbara Streisand in there playing, you know, and we had West Montgomery. So I was I was kind of all over the map musically. And I think that that kind of led to come be being all over the map professionally. <laughs> but it means that, you know, when you go into a session, it's all about the song, right? You've got to, as a bass player, you've got to fit in and make sure that that line that you come up with works for that song. Would you agree? Serve the song. Absolutely. Like Quincy Jones says, three most important things, the song, the, the song, song, the song. song. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard that one. Well, look, yeah. you know, nowadays, so many guys try to show how fast they can play, how fancy, how flash they can be. I always thought that 
for a bass player, and you typify this, the two words that I would always want to think about when I think about a player and, a, and their work, tasteful and exquisite. And I really believe that those words apply to your playing. Mm. Well, thank you. That's a, that's a very high compliment. I don't even know how to react. <laughs> but you, you, actually, uh, you actually hit on what the things that I think about when I'm playing. You know, I mean, taste is, is the reason you're there. You know, the, your choices, your instincts. And these are, these are the things I think people rely on, on us for. And, um, you know, some people I've worked for never have had to tell me what to play. And I mean, I, I like it when people, you know, explain, okay, I like this. And if you want to just go boom, 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 you know, but it's, uh, it's one of the things that to this day, when I go in, the first thing I do is listen and say, what does this big picture need? And, um, and how can I be of service to it? You know, one of my favorite guitarists from that whole British invasion era was George Harrison. Right. Not because he was the best guitarist. He wasn't the flashiest guy, but everything he came up with was tasteful, at least in my opinion. Absolutely. I mean, not only tasteful, but memorable, singable, all those parts that he played, you know, they, they, they get inside of your heart and your head. And, and, you know, those, those are much more memorable than if he had approached the music from a, oh, dig how fast I can play or, or how flashy I can be. Yeah, unfortunately, at least for me, because I don't come from that era. You know, I was not part of the slapping, popping, blah, blah, blah era. So I'm, I think more in terms of lines and figuring out, again, what works with the song. Not that I have anything against it. Guys are incredibly good at that kind of stuff. But to me, it's not about how fast you can play or how flash, but rather how well can you enhance what you're playing? Absolutely. I can remember just as a youngster too, listening to those James Taylor records and, you know, release Galar, you've got a friend and the way he was just so tastefully sliding around and, and like the choices. Right. And were just so exquisite and, and, you know, taste classy, you know, and, and, you think that's what you want to aspire to be. Now, um, nothing wrong with being the fastest guy on the block. I mean, all you you have but to scroll down Instagram now. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I do it. Speed I, demons. <laughs> I do it with the sound off sometimes, just to <laughs> see if I can figure out with it. But I mean, literally, I see guys that are doing stuff that I can't even see with their fingers. It's so fast. <laughs> And I mean, yeah, it's it's really impressive too. I mean, it's like the ooh ah, Olympic chop, you win. <laughs> you know, what that for? But uh, you know, in the words of Jaco Pastore, get me a gig, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, we're gonna play one of the songs that you have done when we get into this uh song fest, which we're gonna go to really very soon. And it just blows my mind every time I hear you play this particular song, but I'm going to hold that back for a second. Let everybody kind of wonder, which one is he talking about? But let's do the song fest now because it's, you know, we can talk about music and bass playing with Nathan, but you got to hear what this guy does. And it's just so remarkable across the spectrum. So Nate and I picked out some songs that I guess, you know, are favorites or things that he likes and that I thought were also representative of his playing across the spectrum. And we're going to play them now starting underneath us. And I'm going to ask Nate to kind of talk a little bit about the backstory. How did it come about? What's interesting about the song? So let's start with a more recent thing, which is the Daft Punk song, the big, big hit, Get Lucky. Tell us about that. And by the way, that's a song that just makes you feel good. Like the legend of the phoenix All ends with beginnings What keeps the planet spinning from the beginning Love. We've come too far To give up 
in my mind, your bass drives the whole song. Uh, thank you. Well, that, that was a feel-good moment, even in the studio. I mean, I remember that song coming up and, you know, everybody was kind of dancing around the studio. It would, you have to, you know, because the groove right. was so solid. And then what happened is they, we recorded a lot of those songs as ideas and that one was kind of instrumental. I didn't know it was going to go on top of it. Then it went back to New York. Uh, Niall Rogers wrote the guitar part. And Pharrell wrote the lyrics and put those on. So when it got back to LA and they played it for me, I asked if I could have another go because once Niall got on it, it, it for me, it had that chic, really tight dance feel and, and I wanted to do my Bernard Edwards impersonation <laughs> <laughs> and, and just have another crack at it. So we we just put it on and, and the bass part you hear was was my uh, kind of second take. Oh, reaction. so you, you re-recorded it after so I re-recorded it. Oh, okay. That was, it, it was just, it's great to be able to do that because it was with the benefit of having, you know, Niall and Pharrell and all those guys to play to. So it's kind of like you're going to come up with a different part. The other day I was in recording something and there was no no vocal on it and and no guitar. And so without those, it was kind of like I was flying blind. And sure enough, they sent me a version with the guitar on it and it made it completely different. Every note choice, every, I mean, everything was completely different. And, and I did it without the benefit of the vocal, but at least I had something more to, to play to, you know, and so, uh, We'd get lucky it was it was that it was it was nice to kind of insert the new bass part into the record awesome okay let's move to uh some work that you've done with eric clapton by the way you know for someone like me who loved cream as much as i did and uh, that was my era i would die and go to heaven to work with eric clapton so you know i bow down to you that you're you're eric's bass player at this point you did a song with him that was a, a, a such a big hit tears in heaven and it was an extraordinary song but i'm going to give you another compliment there's that little fill that you do in that song and i love your fills okay as a bass player i know exactly what you're trying to do and that fill that you did it was almost like a, a fretless kind of fill was divine it's the only word i could ever come up with divine it just made the hair on the back of my neck stand out and i said this is so perfect for the song you know what i'm talking about in that song and and how did you come up with that it was so brilliant well the the first version that we recorded was for the uh, rush soundtrack and we um we were a village studio village recorder so so i i did play fretless on the uh, first version not the unplugged version but but on that particular version, and and literally what I always say is, I didn't play the song, the song played me. Mm -hmm. you know, just go in there and put your hands on the instrument and what came out, came out. And you know, it, it was one of those things where it was having, obviously having known Connor and, and being close to that situation, it was just, um, you know, one of those heart-wrenching moments to, to be, you know, playing this song that is going to be 
dedicated to to his son in in that kind of way so uh you know the song really did play me i mean th those those were things that just just came out well it was extraordinary and look the song is a great song regardless but i really thought that your your bass playing on that song was just remarkable and the next one that i wanted to mention with eric clapton again another brilliant brilliant bass uh part and that's changed the world where you kind of start off on that that low e you let it ring i mean it was it's so tasteful if i can reach the stars pull one down for you shining on my heart so you could see the truth then this love i have Again, you know, you hear it and then, okay, here's the, this is playing the blues, you know, I mean, it was such a good, it, Change the World was one of those songs I said, man, I wish I wrote this. <laughs> but, you know, at least to be able to contribute to the bass part, you know, felt like being part of something. It was, it was what, song of the year at the Grammys and really, uh, you know, Babyface, the touch that he added, the way he produced it, and then, just Eric singing, those those things come along uh, very rarely like that. Right. It's like a magic moment. Absolutely. And we live for those. <laughs> yes, we live for those. Just to switch a little bit, you mentioned before McCartney's bass playing, and I think he doesn't get this, the credit for his bass playing that he should get. And I always think of his, uh, his bass part on something. Oh, right. Okay. Of course. Yeah. You know, something, it's a love song. It's a beautiful ballad. And for the most part, bass players are taught that on ballads, you keep it very simple. Right. And yet he played almost like a lead bass part on that. Right. And it was perfect, in my opinion. What do you think? Absolutely perfect. No, no. And, and not only that, it was like he had his paintbrush out, you know, so all those beautiful little lyrical moments that he has it's just he's painting the song and it's funny you should mention that because that's that's one of my favorite songs and line bass bass lines ever And it was against type. That's kind of what I was thinking, even at the time I heard it initially. I said, wow, what is he doing there? He's, he's so active, and yet it fit. Yeah. You know, bass players like him, Sting, where they're just so dynamic and, and their personalities are so larger than life. They, you know, and they're great singers, writers, but their, their bass playing to me is, is just as important and, and right up there with all those other qualities. And um, I've, I've always been impressed with guys that, you know, can lead a band and, and they're the bass player. Right. Well, I try to do that, but I, it, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. But, you know, I'm, I'm from the school that the bass, for the most part, sets the tone in the band and drives the band, at least in my band. So I don't mind playing the bass and letting the other guys do the soloing. I want to keep that thing going down the highway the way I want it to. Absolutely. 
tracks, you know. <laughs> okay, so let's move to an older track that you did, which was just one of the great tracks and fun tracks of all time. I'm talking about Footloose, Kenny Loggins. the story about that song and working with Kenny Loggins oh yeah well you know the I guess he got hired to to write the, you know the song for the film while he was on tour or you know he went on tour because every day we would find a rehearsal hall or the conference room wherever we stayed and we would go rehearse Footloose and so I remember him kind of trying to write it and and then it was just developing over a couple months. And so, you know, pretty soon by the time we got to the studio, we had played that song so many times on the, on tour in rehearsing that it literally, I think it was the first take uh, when we got it. And, you know, I had the benefit of of honing that, that bass part to, uh, you know, every day trying to just like make it better, just work work on it, carve out a little more. So I, I can remember just, um, you know, when we re finally recorded it, and, and again, you know, song of the year, the Grammys, and it was it was like big hit. Everybody loved it. And uh, what more could you ask for when you when you come up with a song? Well, I mean, it had such great energy and. I love the idea that you kind of went in the studio together and you just you just played it all together, right? Yes, yeah, just played as, as if we were doing a performance. How many, I mean, right now, when, I, when my band goes in the studio, we rehearse like crazy, we go in, and within two or three takes at the most, we've got our song down. But is that the, the way that you find most recordings are going these days, or is it more like instrument by instrument? These days, I think there's a lot of uh, instrument by instrument recording just because of the nature of, well, first of all, for the last year, you know, you couldn't even go out in the same room together. So I got sent loads and loads of tracks that way. And, but there's no substitute for being on the floor with the guys and, and reacting to what you're hearing. And the moment that's being recorded is happening that one moment in time all for everybody right you know, that's always been one of the most magical things about recording well it's that interaction between the band members that right. that's what captures the magic yeah i mean you you play as a response to what you're hearing and then it goes back and forth you know it's like right. a dialogue like a conversation right so that's not as easy to get that kind of magic when everybody's doing their own bits and pieces, you know, in, in separate locations. Yeah. It would be like trying to carry on a conversation <laughs> in separate locations. Even, <laughs> right. even in our At world. separate times too. Right. Right. I, I often, cause now, you know, there's a delay. I, I sometimes, and you know, you're looking at news or whatever, and they're talking and, and, and it's just difficult. You're in a different uh, time zone. <laughs> you're in a different location. And then, you know, so one person steps on the other line, then you wait up, up, up. So can you imagine making music? <laughs> yeah, but then you got that delay thing going on. I the delay understand is happening. It's, it's, it's very awkward, you know. So You know, when, when the pandemic first hit, we had just put out an album, really by sheer luck, about a month before the whole world closed down. 
And then after the world closed down, we couldn't play behind it, of course. So we were saying to ourselves, well, what do we do now? So we said, well, we'll make a video. And we decided we're going to all play together live on the video, except you can't do that because of, you know, the technical problems. So we made, you know, those Zoom videos with everybody in their little box, you know, with like the, <laughs> like the Hollywood squares, okay? And we're lip syncing and lip playing. What more could you do at that time? Crazy. Exactly. Who knew? Right. So the next song we're going to go to now, you did this song with Phil Collins, Easy Lover, and you co-wrote the song too. So tell us about that. Yeah, one of, one of the most exciting times too, because when I uh, was invited to go record that album in England, uh, Philip Bailey called me and said, you know, you want to come do this album? Phil Collins, oh yeah, you know. The day we landed, Against All Odds went number one. And so Phil Collins, you know, getting ready to go meet and play with a guy that has a number one record. I mean, that's just, the timing of that was really felt great. And um, we recorded for a couple of weeks, tracked at um, Townhouse Studios in, in London. And when we got to about the, the last, we finished maybe all the eight songs and Philip said, oh, we still need an undeniable single, you know. The label just, this will be our first thing that launched the record. And so we just went over to the piano and started playing. And literally, it was, it was amazing how quick, you know, just like, you know, this kind of, this was the groove. It's, people could dance to and work out to maybe so we we got kind of like the basis of the the song and then just said let's make a track of this and then come back the next day and listen to it and you know then we'll make the record so we put the track down george max massenberg's amazing engineer we come back the next morning play the track and everybody goes what's wrong with that i mean <laughs> what would we change nothing <laughs> you know so that ended up being the track that was it that was it and um bill collins you know had been singing choosy lover but then he, he had these lyrics easy lover and he came up with these lyrics and as he was singing them to phil bailey i'm thinking well why don't you sing you sound great on it too why don't you guys do it as a duet i mean it's all like unraveling in in real time and they okay do it maybe okay yeah let's let's do it okay you take Philip, you, you take the part you wrote, the verses, you know, and uh, it, it just kind of happened like that. And I mean, when you talk about magic, that was pretty much it. Really organic. I love that. I love stories like that where it just kind of happens. It's not pre-planned, you know, to the nth degree. No. And and uh, the other fun thing from a, from a bass standpoint is um, I was kind of, you know, here I am now in England, but... I'm with one of my R&B brothers, but we're over in Britain where we had a British invasion. So in my mind, I was kind of trying to combine combine R&B and rock. And I was trying to do like a hybrid type of performance, you know? So you got, you got eighth notes pumping on the bottom on some sections, and then you got the funk in there on other sections. So it was kind of, I thought, you know, this is an opportunity to, to bring these worlds together. Well, you did a fantastic job on that for sure. Thank you. Okay. I want to go to the last song that we got teed up here. I came across your live version on YouTube of Stevie Wonder's Sir Duke, <laughs> which you played at the NAM convention. 
And Nathan didn't just play, you know, the melody. He didn't just play the bass. He played everything. Okay. I mean, this was like one of those gaga moments where I'm watching you, you're smiling, you're playing, you're not even looking at the bass. Just an amazing performance. Okay. You made me sick to my stomach. I want you to know. <laughs> <laughs> Try playing a Stevie song and he rolls up on you. I mean, talk about your stomach. <laughs> <laughs> I did hear about that. But, you know, talk about how you put that together. Just a marvelous performance. Oh, thanks. Well, the, first of all, you know, and, and I've covered a Stevie song on every every one of my albums. I think I put two on one of the albums. And, and how do you not revere anything that Stevie has ever done, right? And uh, so the song Sir Duke was one of those where, you know, we, we recorded and funny enough, we had Chuck Finley who played on the original one 40 years prior and nice great horn section. Tom Scott did, did some uh, arranging and, you know, the song, you know, just to be different because I, you know, Stevie is the is the wheel. So there's not much you can change, but just to be different, I put these these modulated lines in there on the on the bam ba da ba da da you know so you got the harmony in there as well yeah so just just to do that but the thing is is i have that track on my phone without they call it a tv track where you you just have the track and then you could play the bass on top of it if i ever did you know a solo performance or whatever so i had the track and i was at the genelic booth the the nam show was closing in in 40 minutes and they said, oh, you got to check these new speakers out, which I have in my studio. And I had a new set, so I plugged the bass into the speakers and then, okay, you have to have something to play to. So I just played my track of, of Sir Duke and I start playing along with it. And I'm going, oh, this sounds great. You know, and basically everybody had left because by the time 20 minutes of the whole show, you know, everybody's gone, they're all packing up. And, and then I, I just look over my shoulder and I see Steve showing up, like rolling up on that. <laughs> like, you couldn't have said at 4.40, meet me at the Genelec booth. <laughs> but as soon as I start playing this song, I look up and there's Stevie Wonder while I'm playing this song. And then he just comes over, hey, Nate, how you doing? And we're just carrying on a conversation. And the, and the song is just keeps going. And, and I look around and then next thing you know, like a million iPhones and <laughs> people. But it was, it was a moment that I'll never forget. And just so magical, you know, just... Uh, to uh you know and, and he's he's the best 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 guy ever you know he he put out those albums in the 70s you know one after another and they were just the most magnificent albums and i think the story goes that one year simon and garfunkel won the album for album of the year and in their acceptance speech at the grammys they thank Stevie Wonder for not putting out an album that year. Because <laughs> <Right. laughs> otherwise, like he would have won it. Like to thank Stevie Wonder for not making an album this That's year. Right. Exactly. And, you know, songs in the key of life. I mean, he's, he's been the soundtrack to our lives for as long as we can remember. Amazing. Is there any artist that you would love to work with that you haven't worked with yet? Well, Prince was that, that guy. And, uh, Prince and Miles Davis were two that I kind of had on the bucket list that I hadn't really worked with. Pat Metheny is a guy that I just revere. I enjoy his playing and, and uh, we've jammed and done, you know, just kind of jam sessions at his house, but nothing ever in the, in the full capacity, like recording or whatever. So he'd be on my, uh, he'd be on my wish list as well as um, James Taylor who we've done many, many, many 
like uh, these multi-artist events together where, you know, I'm, I'm in the band and playing behind everybody. And we did the inauguration uh, when President Obama was inaugurated. We were on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, as everybody, Garth Brooks, Bono, Stevie Wonder, Herbie, I mean, it was A to Z, Beyonce. And so we worked together and, and we were backstage hanging. And uh, it was the sweetest thing he said, I hope you don't consider this us working together, right? <laughs> 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 and, uh, you know, he, he'd be on the way. Jimmy Johnson, who is his music director and bass player, is his dear friend as well. And, you know, I, I don't know why I ever, there would ever need be a need to call me, but um, he'd be a guy that would be fun to right, fun you, to work with. You got to get in line behind me on that one, okay? <laughs> I, <laughs> I I just interviewed uh, Lee Sklar on this podcast. Hey, my buddy! And uh, you know, Lee told all these great James Taylor stories from back in the day. And I said to him, and I'll say it to you, I said, look, Lee, if, if you ever need somebody to be a caddy, okay, somebody just kind of carry stuff around just in case you trip and fall and let me kind of jump in, uh, I'm, I'm your guy, okay? <laughs> oh, I, bet he, I bet he got that offer a couple times, too. I'm sure he did. Well, I mean, he's, between- he's a wonderful player and a great, great guy. Funny and uh, I love Lee. Yeah. And uh, like you, you know, on the Mount Rushmore of basis, <laughs> this has been such a, a, a wonderful time with you. I, I want to ask you one more question here. You know, this is a podcast called Follow Your Dream. And I like to ask my guests if there's any advice that you would give for a dreamer out there, somebody that's got a dream, maybe they've pursued it, maybe they haven't, maybe they've succeeded or tried to succeed, but they haven't. What would be your advice as somebody that has been so magnificently successful? You know, I would say dream big and don't ever not believe in your dreams because, I mean, I, I don't even think the, the life that I've had as, as a result of me playing the bass, I don't even think that's something I could have dreamt. <laughs> it's like it's, it would surpass anything that I could dream up. And um, so that's why I think, you know, if you have a dream, first of all, that's that's the good news. You know, some people don't even have a dream, you know, and, and so you're lucky if there's something that you would dream of being able to do and then just, you know, make your mark and just every day you get closer and closer. Words of wisdom from Nathan East. Nathan, thank you so much for being on this podcast. I really do appreciate it. And now we're going to hear again the song that we started out with underneath the introduction. It's my version of a song by Cream. I'm so glad. I tried to change it around a bit because I, I kind of like when you reimagine songs. So this was something where we were playing live and uh, I said, let me come up with something. And interestingly, because we're talking bass parts today, I, I kind of came up with a Bo Diddley type of beat on the bass for this song. And it, it just worked. So anyway, I hope you enjoy it. And uh, we'll see you next episode. Thanks so much. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at the pgsstore.com.
Thank you.